Welcome back to Studs. I'm Daniel Lazar. Studs explores and honors working. It also honors the life's work of the oral historian and legendary Chicago radio host, Louis Studs Turkle. And in my effort to close the social distance, Studs gives me a chance to check in with good, hardworking people and take a deep dive into what they do for a buck. Thank you so much for tuning in. And a special thanks to all of the educators out there and all of the people in the Kennedy School community who have reached out with your kind words and your gestures of support. And I agree that in these funky times, it's critically important that we shine an empathic light on the work of educators. It is what I'm trying to do. And I am grateful that you're tuning in and that you're digging it. And look, if you've been listening to studs, if you've learned something, if you felt connected to our conversations, then let me give you a chance to give back. Head over to patreon.com studs and see what you can get for supporting the podcast. No pressure, no pressure, but for as little as a couple bucks a month, you can help keep studs going strong. And it is with great pleasure that I can give a little shout out to a new studs patron, Olivia Swarthout. Now, Olivia was a student of mine at the Kennedy School years ago. Right now, she's out there in Glasgow, brightening up people's days, deeply committed to environmental justice, and making the world a better place. If you're listening to this, Olivia, and I hope that you are, I gotta tell you that just knowing that you're listening to the podcast would have brought me tremendous joy. But the fact that you're willing to drop some of your hard-earned bucks to support this project brings me something like an emotional glitter bomb. So thanks, Olivia, for supporting the podcast. You're still the best. And dear listeners, if the time isn't right for you to donate to studs, I get it. We're good. But it would mean the world to me if you could just do this here one-two punch. One, hit the follow button right now. Go on. Wherever you get podcasts, there's a little follow button, there's a little subscribe button, hit that thing. And then two, tell a friend about the podcast. Maybe share with them the link to your favorite episode. And this episode could easily turn out to be your favorite. Because this episode of the Studs Pod features a conversation with Nate Calhoun. Nate's an elementary school physical education teacher. And he and I discuss how he fosters healthy cooperation and fierce competition in his noble pursuit to teach kids life lessons that have less to do with sports than might meet the untrained eye. We also explore the ways in which being a physical education teacher can be physically and psychologically taxing. Now, Nate and I both started at the Kennedy School in 2007, back when our lives and our time seemed, well, I don't know, let's just say less complicated. I've long admired his connection to kids, so it was a real pleasure to dive into his working life with him. So please join me in conversation with Coach Cal. Nate Calhoun, welcome to Studs. It is a pleasure to be in conversation with you. How do you describe what you do? I am a public servant. I'm a performer. I'm an educator. I'm a caregiver. But primarily, my job is to teach kids about the benefits of exercise and promoting a lifelong learning in sport. So the short form of it is you're a sport teacher, you're a physical educator, 
And I'm wondering why you became a teacher and in particular, why you became an elementary physical educator. So I was an athlete growing up. I played baseball and basketball and soccer, really enjoyed my experiences. I was an all-around athlete. I wouldn't say I was great at anything, but I enjoyed playing all sports, which led to me going to college. And I thought to myself, what is it that I want to do? And I knew that I wanted to continue to be active. And I had already coached children in some way, shape or form in basketball and tennis at that point in my life. And so I was meeting with my college counselor and, and they suggested, well, you know, exercise and sports science in some way, shape or form. And I knew with my background that education would probably be something that I would enjoy. So I got into the program and exercise and sports science and began the concentration of physical education. And I learned that I was actually gifted in working with young children. Even though in my mind I had already made it up, I'm going to be a basketball coach. This is why I'm getting into education. I cannot wait to coach basketball and hopefully, you know, start at the middle school level, move up to high school. And the ultimate dream was to be a college coach one day. And yeah, I received a job offer here in Germany working with an elementary school. The rest is history. I uh, gave up on my dream of becoming a basketball coach because I found that working with young children was a passion of mine and I really enjoyed it. And I saw the impact that I was having on their lives. And that is in essence why I do what I do and why I continue to do what I do. Yeah. It kind of keeps you coming back for more, right? Now, just to tap into it a little bit, I have seen your athletic performance you're really a bona fide athlete. You move well, you're graceful, you're strong. Can you talk a little bit about your passion for athletics more broadly? I have to give credit to my parents who really, at an early age, they got me involved in sports for many different reasons, but socially I think was one of the biggest benefits for me. I started out playing all sports, basketball, baseball, American football, and around the age of 11, I found myself really drawn to basketball and Coming from North Carolina, big basketball programs, you <laughs> it's can in imagine. the water, right? Yeah. Um, so that led me to play AAU basketball, which is basically year round. I made an early commitment, though, that basketball was what I wanted to pursue. So much so that I remember my middle school teacher or my junior high school teacher telling me, you're going to regret not playing baseball one day. And she was right. As an adult, looking back, I regret not playing. But <laughs> I, I've enjoyed my time as an athlete at There was a lot of blood, sweat, and tears that were put into it, as cliche as that may sound. Uh, Three ankle surgeries later and 10 broken bones. You know, I've paid my dues, but I've enjoyed it and I've learned so much from it. And uh, I hope that I can pass on my knowledge to the kids that I teach. And I know that you do pass on your knowledge to the kids at our school. Part of the reason that your ankles went all cattywampus and you broke all those bones is because you're a fierce competitor. This is part of who you are. But you're also deeply engaged in projects to do with cooperation. Can you talk a little bit about how you balance your desire to foster both competition and cooperation when working with young students? Well, one of my mottos that I learned from Tammy Schilling, who was a a great cooperating teacher of mine, is TCC, Teamwork, Communication, and Cooperation. If you want to be successful and you're working in a group setting, you have to have 
good teamwork, good cooperation, and good communication. I think we can acknowledge that in any professional world that those three things are essential when you're working together in a group. I really personally put an emphasis on the communication and the cooperation, the affective learning in the classroom, social, emotional health of the child. However, as you've already stated, sports in their nature are competitive and you can't take that out of it. When I split up teams, there may be times that I put an individual or individuals on a losing team because I need them to learn and understand the importance of losing in life. Embracing that competitive nature and that competitive side of sports is really important because obviously we know you're not going to go through your entire life winning every competition or being a winner in the sense that you're going to be successful in everything that you do. And losing in life is something that we all have to learn to accept. And I think that is super important for children. And I start at an early age and explain to them, you know, exactly that, that part of their grade may be learning to accept losing. And I always tell them, you don't have to like it. You don't have to love it. I don't think that anyone does. It's in our nature not to like it. But we have to learn to do it the correct way. What's the correct way to lose? <laughs> what do you teach them about the most graceful ways of expressing loss? If you lose and you're engaged in it in a way that makes you competitive, how do you feel personally? I've never been a particularly good loser. I have to confess to you. I think my question for you is really wrapped up in my own desire yeah. for therapy on the matter. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, and that's common for all of us. I think most individuals get frustrated when they lose and learning to cope with that and learning strategies to get over that is something that I do at an early age. And obviously the nature of sports makes it easy for me to do so. So help me out. Let's dive into some specifics. Like what are the strategies that we can teach our children about how to lose well? I think the first thing is to acknowledge the loss, the acceptance, right? The second thing would be to calm them down, to give them the time, particularly the space that they need to gather themselves and understand, hey, I lost. This is a normal thing in life. Giving them a moment to just relax, reflect, and telling them that it's, this is something that is normal. It's going to happen to them in many different scenarios in their life, in many different ways. And I think just normalizing losing, you know, that it's going to happen to us and that it's okay to lose. How do you grapple with students who feel thoroughly defeated as people when they lost an otherwise simple game in a third grade sports class. Perseverance, baby. Perseverance. That's another important lesson that I teach in sports, you know. Let's all think of our situation with our own health. I'm sure many of our listeners today have had battles with sedentary behaviors or inactivity in their life, especially concerning we're coming out of Corona or we're still in it. Um, perseverance, you know, we have to find that inner strength to keep pushing especially when it gets tough and when you're losing constantly or when you are finding it difficult to stay engaged because it's not easy for you, whether you're losing or not. I mean, to persevere through the loss or to get over the difficult times is a really important life lesson that I can teach. And I know that you do, you know, in full disclosure, I suppose I should share with our listeners that not only are you an old friend of mine, you have also been my daughter's sport teacher and she has you on quite a pedestal, I should say. 
Indeed, she has a question or two that she's going to ask you today. So in my daughter's eyes and in mine, you're a real star, bona fide expert, high-level professional. And perhaps for that reason, I want to challenge you with this, I think, kind of vexing question. I know that you want to promote collaboration and cooperation, and I'm sure over the course of our discussion today, you'll talk about all the ways that you do. But to some degree and in some way, you're trying to promote competition. You want them out there doing their best, competing, trying to win. I think we both realize that there is both hope and danger in competition, broadly speaking, and competition among young people in particular. So with that as sort of a framework, can you talk a little bit about the role of competition in your elementary school sport classes? I mean, you're going to learn lessons, life lessons that are going to be pivotal in your development through adolescence and adulthood through competition. I think that's safe to say. So is it an integral part of the learning experience in sports and, and physical education? Yes. But should it be at the center? Absolutely not. I think that some of the lessons that could be taught through competition or that I do teach through competition are accountability, teamwork. Leadership is something that is, is important. One of the bigger things I think that children can learn through competition is conflict resolution. Yes. Sometimes when we compete, our emotions get the best of us. Yes. <laughs> as we previously stated, not many of us in life enjoy losing. So this gives me an opportunity to come in in an educational sense and really help students resolve the conflict. And surprisingly enough, a lot of kindergartners, first graders, second graders don't have the tools necessary to resolve the conflict themselves. And that's part of also what I teach and what I do. A lot of my job revolves around conflict resolution and learning to do that through classroom management has been a difficult process. Yeah, um, I bet. 15 years in the profession has allowed me to get better at it. I'm still working on it, but it is, uh, it's a big part of my job, conflict resolution and problem solving. What have you learned about conflict resolution through your decade and a half of working with young people? you're not always going to get the outcome that you desire. And there may be times where you have to table the discussion for a day or two and revisit it. And that can be difficult for me as an educator because I want results now, you know, I don't know. <laughs> like the rest of us. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think pumping the brakes, taking your time, allowing the children to do it themselves is the ultimate goal for me. And they have to embrace it, be involved in the resolution. And if it's not student led, then we're going to fall into the same hole in another day or two or a week or two or a month or two or a year that's going to come back up because we're not really resolving anything if it's not student led. So you really have to take a great leap of faith in our young students vis-a-vis -vis their perspicacity to resolve their own conflicts. You can create the space for them you can create the time for them, but ultimately, if I'm hearing you right, 
it's on them to resolve their conflicts. Absolutely. I mean, it takes facilitation from us as educators in order to help them and to navigate that conversation with them so that they can do it in a way that makes both people feel comfortable and most importantly, safe. So Coach Calhoun, creating this very type of environment where students feel safe, where they feel like they're part of something, you know, they're part of a team, they're part of a class, they're part of a process. A lot of this goes back to this pedagogical urge that many of us have to take what I'm going to call a holistic approach to education. I think every pedagogue claims to take a holistic approach. They're teaching the whole child. Some teachers are thoroughly committed to holistic education. Some have no commitment to it other than merely saying it sometimes. Easy to say, really hard to apply. Precisely. In listening to you discuss your work, it becomes overwhelmingly evident to me that you are deeply committed to teaching the whole child. I guess I wonder how and why you succeed in that mission and how and why you sometimes don't. Can you talk about your maybe successes and failures in your noble pursuit of holistic education? Let's start with the difficult aspect of creating a safe space. That means you have to know every single student in your classroom, which I'm confident I know most of them, but it's important in creating the space. Just to get a sense of it, about how many students do you have on any given school year? Usually I teach 300 to 350. So this is indeed in and of itself a Herculean effort. Absolutely. So carry on then. You're not going to know. It's impossible to know if you're getting through to every child, if you're creating the space, if your efforts in teaching in a holistic manner are really coming through. So that part for me is difficult because I don't know. I only know from talking with parents, colleagues in my department, students themselves, but it's, it's difficult not knowing and if you're getting through to every child and when you have moments where you're not getting through, I sometimes have sleepless nights over this. I think that's part of what keeps me engaged. It keeps me motivated. It keeps me coming back because I want to reach every child. And I, I take pride in that. Yeah. I'm not always successful. And when I'm not successful, I go back to the drawing board. I find new strategies. I find new ways. But learning to accept that as a teacher is something that I've had to do. With that being said, creating the safe space for students is something I also take pride in. I feel like in general, I do a great job in creating and maintaining a safe space for my students. It's a safe space. It's a collaborative space. It's a competitive space. It's a very loud space, which we'll get into, I'm sure, at some point in this conversation. And you have this desire to teach them from head to toe, right? This holistic approach, there's social emotional learning. There's sort of an academic side in terms of, you know, physiology and rules of games. You're trying to teach a whole spectrum of lessons. And I'd love to hear you talk more about how you do that and when it works and when it doesn't. I think one of the first things I would like to touch on is in 2021, we have to accept the fact that 
technology is essential to the students. There are many, many, many great things that come from technology, but developing a child's social skills is not one of them. And I find that it has been a challenge and it seems to get increasingly more challenging as time passes by to help these students interact socially. I mean, especially after Corona, it has been such a difficult time and it breaks my heart to know that so many students were sitting in front of a computer for eight hours a day or more and not being able to get outside. So the social aspect is, is a very important part that I find in this holistic approach. Hey man, can you talk a little bit about the social environment that you're trying to create in the sport hall? Well, as we have already established, you know, creating this safe space, that's where we start. And then once we're in that space, how do we continue to develop it? Socially, students need to be able to perform without fear. And that in and of itself is challenging and leads to an, a lot of lessons that I can teach. But unfortunately, sometimes it's in a child's nature to not filter what they say. It just comes out. It comes across in a negative way. And unfortunately, some children hold on to those negative thoughts for a long time. And we see it happen in sport class on a weekly basis where someone makes a comment about someone else and then the person is anxious about performing. There is a certain amount of performance anxiety that comes with participating in sport class. I think it can be very difficult for children of different genders to perform in front of one another. It's a difficult part of the job, making everyone feel safe. And there are going to be moments where people don't necessarily feel safe because of what someone has said. But that goes back to conflict resolution and stepping in as a teacher and enjoying that aspect of the learning process, really. I think I take pride in that and I have really put an emphasis on the effect of learning in the classroom and the social and emotional learning that takes place. If you're an early educator right now, if you're starting off your career, really put an emphasis on that, especially if you're a sport teacher, because we, we're lucky in the sense that we are able to teach these lessons, these life lessons that children are going to use when they're applying for a job whether it be 15, 25, or 35 years old, when the students meet adversity in life, whether it's sticking to a workout plan or loss, dealing with loss of a loved one. You know, these are all coping skills that we can teach in sport. These are going to be skills that they're going to continue to develop in other subject areas. I think it's our job as educators to foster these skills that will last a lifetime. I love that response and thank you for it. I want to dive into two things that you said. The first of which is just sort of a feeling that I'm getting. I have the sense in listening closely to you that sport itself is adjacent to, perhaps even secondary to, what you're actually trying to teach. Like that sport is the conduit you use. It's the platform that you have to teach young people that they have a safe space 
and that this space is one in which they can cultivate all sorts of skills, some of which are physical, most of which kind of aren't. How, how truthy is that statement? Oh, you hit the nail on the head 100%. I could not agree with you more. I can't help but fathom that that's why you are a virtual celebrity among the younger students at our school, because that is precisely why you're there. You are there and they sense or perhaps intuit or otherwise know that you are there to help them to grow and to develop and to become more full and rich and happier people. The memories that come to me when I reflect on sports and my involvement in sports growing up really have more to do with these life lessons, with these skills that I'm trying to pass on and teach to my students than it does with specific moments in the game or winning or losing. Or when I reflect, I think about the camaraderie. I think about the moments that were spent off the court more so than I do on the court and just learning how to become a man and the coaches that help foster that experience for me. I imagine that you're sort of eternally grateful to those who help to walk you through some of those difficult lessons. And I also imagine that a lot of our students are going to be eternally grateful that you're sort of carrying that torch. I just want to note that you know, I almost came to tears a moment ago when I started reflecting and thinking about some coaches and teachers. Because and, I actually recently reached out to two educators on Facebook. My fourth grade, third and fourth grade teacher, Ms. Johnson, her and then my assistant basketball coach and high school coach again. I wrote them both recently to express my gratitude and their public service and just to say, hey, look, I, I don't know if you'll read it, but I feel it's very important to share that you had a positive impact on my life. Well, I'm right here with you, man, because I actually felt myself getting a bit emotional and thinking about the coaches who have had a profound influence in my life. And I know I'm grateful to them. And I guess I've expressed it to some of them and not to others. I also have had, I should say, some heinous coaches. Absolutely. Oh, As some we of, all have. Some of the worst people I've met in life. Perseverance, right? <laughs> it, it, <it's... laughs> Goes back to getting through difficult times. That's part of the process in sports. You know, coaches, their, their approach to the game may be different than our own. And they may have other ideas of how to foster learning in that sport. Well, I also think that there's almost like a frat boy element to it all where they were bullied. And so they feel it's their duty now to bully the next generation. I also think it's true to give them a little bit of a pass, mm -hmm. you know, empathy being the goal always, that hurt people hurt people. And I think a lot of the coaches I had, mm -hmm. and I didn't have this perspective when I was a teen, but they were just hurt Absolutely. people. Yeah. I think once we can acknowledge that, that that's coming from a place then we can move past some of those negative experiences we had with those individuals, right? Yeah. There was another thing that you sort of touched on in your previous response that if you're comfortable, I'd like to dive into it a little bit. I know that there's all sorts of controversy 
around gendered classes in sport. Should kids who identify more as boys or should kids who identify more as girls be in mixed or in separate classes? And of course, it should be duly noted here that there are students who don't, for perfectly good reasons, identify particularly well with either gender. What has your experience taught you about what we're loosely going to call a co-ed class versus a gender-segregated sport class? I would like to preface what I'm about to say by letting you know this is new territory for me, I think for a lot of us. And so I just want the listeners to know I'm not an expert in the language that is to be used when discussing this topic yet, but I will make an effort to improve. And like many, I'm evolving on this subject matter and continuing to learn and grow. At our school, kindergarten through fourth grade is co-ed. As of fifth grade through 10th grade, the classes are segregated. From my experiences, I think our school has been successful with the approach simply because we make a concerted effort to combine classes on a weekly basis so that students who identify as male and so students who identify as female have the opportunity to come together and learn to work with one another or, or to compete with one another. As long as the department makes the effort to make sure that the students are performing together. I think that is at the heart of the issue for me. I don't think, I don't think it would be beneficial for the students if a sport department or a physical education department took the stance that we're going to have segregated classes and we are not going to combine those classes in a school year. I think that this is part of the learning and development process in sports and in life that we have to learn to work together. If you identify as male, and let's say you're a, you can't see my air quotes here, but a stereotypical jock, you're going to have to learn that school sports is not club-based sports, that you're going to have to change your style of play based on the group around you and who you're performing with. And it's my job to make sure that the student understands that. At the same time, let's say that I have a female student who's going through puberty and I'm teaching a co-ed class. I need her to feel safe. I need her to feel supported. I need her to be able to perform in this environment, which means I'm going to have to help her get through this process. Obviously, when the body's changing, you're going through different emotions on the inside and you're just not always going to feel comfortable in your own skin. And that is a fine line, a heck of a tightrope that I have to walk sometimes. Oh, bad. But it's essential to being successful at what I do. I don't want to spend too much time talking about this. I know that this at every school is a source of some controversy and it tends to reemerge every couple of years. We're both parents of daughters. What would you want for your daughters to have in terms of gender in the sport hall? This is my own personal bias speaking, but if I had to choose for my own children, 
assuming that the department is going to do their job and making sure that boys and girls are going to come together and compete and perform. Yeah. I personally think I would feel more comfortable with my daughter in a segregated class simply because it's hard to make generalities when we're talking about this subject. Of course. But I feel like specifically for those who identify as female, the majority of the students who identify as female feel safer to perform and compete in an environment that is primarily female. Yeah. And it seems to me that your thinking about it is wise and that it's not a zero sum game. It's not all or none, right? You can have a class of students who tend to identify as female and a class of students who tend to identify as male. And if they're working with or competing against each other X days a week, then you can kind of have the best of both worlds, which is to say that there might be a more balanced approach to this than the all or none. Mm -hmm. Is that what I'm hearing from you? Yeah. Yeah. I think we do have to acknowledge, as you brought up previously, that there are students who may not identify with either gender, and there's not a quick fix to co-ed classes or single-sex classes. I think just being open, that's our job, listening. You know, like... You may not feel comfortable right now in this class because of this scenario or that, but how how can I help you? What can I do for you to make you feel safer in the environment that we are currently in? I dig that, man. Like we're all growing and evolving on this matter. And I know that your effort to create a safe but a challenging space for these kids will offer all of your students the dignity that they deserve. It's not an easy one. I hope you don't mind my asking about it. Absolutely not. I think it's important to know we can make every effort to make a child feel comfortable and still fail. And that's okay as educators. That's okay because we don't always know what they're going through. It could be the moment in time. Who knows? But I think it's important to acknowledge we can't always get through. And maybe it's not the time to get through to that student, but that doesn't mean that you're not going to get through later on or that the lesson that you taught them in that moment is not going to break through at some point in time in the future. So I don't care whether you're teaching segregated or co-ed classes, creating that safe space, making each child feel as safe as they can and knowing that it's not going to work for every child, but you're going to make an effort. Look, man, I hear you. You know, both of us as parents and as teachers are doing our part to plant seeds and to be responsible, empathic stewards, trying to bring out the best in our kids, our students, ourselves. And I know it's not easy. And I know that the whole question of genders in sport classes is really fraught. I didn't mean to thrust it on you. I got for you a little bit more of a friendly question. And indeed it is A question from a friend of yours. Hi, Nate. Thanks for being on my daddy's podcast. I wanted to ask you, what's your favorite game to play in sports class? Okay, Madeline, this is a tough question. Yeah, welcome to my world. (laughs) I love her. (laughs) (laughs) I would have to go with cooperative games that I traditionally do at the start of the school year. One of my favorites, which I have yet to do with your class, Madeline, and we will definitely do this in the future, is a cooperative game called Cross the Sea. I usually split the students into four to five groups. 
And without any explanation, I give them five to 10 pieces of equipment and tell them they have to cross the gym floor from one baseline to the other without touching the floor. And I give them no tips, no explanation, and just see what happens organically. And it's, it's really quite interesting to see how their brain works and the problem solving that they go through when they're trying to figure out how to cross the floor without touching the floor using the few pieces of equipment that they have. Oh, that's really creative and clever, and it sounds like a blast. It is a blast. And there's one more game that I would point out. I think you're familiar with this game, Adeline. It's called Shark Attack. It is one of my favorites because I get to be the evil villain. It's a game where I shout out commands as loud as I can, and it's the student's job to follow those commands and do what I say, not what I do, because I have to trick the kids in this game, and I'm a trickster. And I make them aware of that at the beginning, right, <laughs> Madeline? But it is one of my favorites because we get to see who really has good listening skills. So hearing you talk about how you have to shout out commands reminds me of this kind of problematic of your job that I want to dive into. All right, I'm going to confess to you that until a decade or so ago, I was probably one of those people who maybe gave sport teachers a bad rap, right? Like they don't have to grade as many essays as I do. So they got it easy was basically my foolhardy argument. But for the last decade or more, as you know, I spend some time in the sport hall. If I have some free time, I'll go to the gym, work out a little bit. And I really like to watch the sport classes. I like to watch you work and some of your colleagues work. I think what happens in the sport hall is very special. And one thing that I am constantly reminded of when I'm in the weight room with the door closed is how debilitatingly loud <laughs> sport classes are. And most of it is the sound of students screaming with joy and screaming with happiness. Like it's the sound of very happy kids. It's a ghastly sound, coach. <laughs> no offense. <laughs> yeah. And I think your job is really hard, not just because it's loud, but because it's also really dangerous. You have a lot of young people who basically don't have control over their bodies. There are accidents that happen probably daily and serious accidents that happen with some frequency. It seems to me that your job is really loud and stressful and dangerous. And frankly, it seems objectively more difficult than mine. I don't know if I have a question. I think I just wanted to <laughs> express my, uh, my sympathy and my empathy. No, perhaps I do have a question. How do you grapple with the noise and the danger and the sheer euphoria of it all? I would challenge anyone to spend a week in our shoes. <laughs> I really would. Um, you know, I signed up for this. There's no doubt in my mind, it is a very high stress. And what we don't do in terms of grading at home, I think we have to get home and decompress. I mean, it is high stress, noise, there's danger for the students as well as the teachers. It's not an easy job. 
But again, I signed up for this and I enjoy what I do. The noise level alone. I anticipate at 38 years old, in the next 10 to 15 years, I will probably need hearing aids at some point. I, I'm conscious of the fact that I'm losing my hearing and I am confident that teaching young children and them enjoying themselves in the sport hall has played into that. The, the deafening joy <sighs> of children. And you think about like the parents who have like one or two or three kids at home and they're like, keep it down, this is impossible. <laughs> and you have like 22 of them. And it's overwhelming, isn't it? Absolutely. And not to mention, most PE teachers were athletes growing up and committed themselves and their lifestyle to a life of sports. So you take that into consideration, any injuries they may have had leading up to their career as a physical educator, sport teacher. Now we're prolonging that career in a sense in terms of standing on our feet the whole day. And as you've already stated, there are times that accidents occur in the sport hall involving the teacher. In that sense, it's dangerous from a health perspective. We signed up for this. We know what we signed up for. We do it as best we can, but it's a factor and you have to consider it and know that at some point in time, these injuries are going to come back around. And I know a handful of sport teachers who have entered their late 40s, 50s, early 60s and had a hip replacement or a knee replacement. And it's just something that you have to be aware of in this field. Well, and just to build on that a little bit, after that knee replacement or the hip replacement, they have to come back to work eventually. And they still have to stand and they still have to take a knee to button some kid's jacket a thousand times a week. <laughs> and it's so clearly physically and psychologically stressful. Can I just ask one kind of pointed question about that? Sure. You know, I'll hang out with my daughter and her buddies and we'll take, you know, three or five kids out and we'll go run around somewhere. And I feel like the slow burning impact of this stress that I feel manifest from the fear that I have that someone else's kid could get hurt on my watch is exhausting. And then I think about you and your work and I magnify that. Can I just ask like, how do you deal with the accumulated stress of that? It's definitely not easy. I've had my fair share of sleepless nights knowing that one of my students was injured, but I would like to tell you a story. My first experience with a, what I will call a major injury, which was a broken bone in the arm around the wrist. So living in Germany, gymnastics is still a big part of the sport curriculum. We were using this vaults, the springboards, and I had a student who was jumping over a horse. The student planted his hands on the horse. I was there to spot him, but he slipped through my grip and I saw the impact of his hand on the gymnastics mat. And I knew right away from the bulge in the wrist that I thought it was broken, but the bulge 10 minutes later disappeared and we weren't sure. But my recommendation was to the mother to take him to the hospital immediately because in my gut, I felt that he had broken his wrist and she did so. And the whole night I was worried and stressing and I could not get the student out of my mind. And how could this happen? I, you know, I, I was there. I, why couldn't I catch him? And the next day, I'll never forget this moment. The mother baked me a cake. And that was part of the fear as, a, as an early educator. I was worried, you know, this happened on my watch. The parents 
had a right to be mad at me. How could I let this happen? At least in my mind, that's how I felt. And to see the, the sheer gratitude that she had and, and yeah, she was very appreciative. That's cool, man. I was kind of desperately afraid that the story was going to go in the other direction, but I'm glad that you got the community support that you deserve in this case. And I'd imagine that that's just one of dozens of stories. I see you nodding your head. It's just part of the job, right? And whether it's a kid that literally slips through your hands or it just happens on your watch, you just have to live with the constant fear, I guess, right? Yeah, it's not easy. It's certainly a challenge of the job. But as we teach our students to grow and to learn, it's something that you have to learn to cope with. It's definitely not going to make you a better educator if you're going to have sleepless nights and you're going to stay up thinking about this. You have to learn how to move on from these issues as an educator in order to become the best version of yourself that you can. I guess I just kind of hope for you that despite the stresses, you're able to find a lot of joy in your work because I know how much joy you bring to the lives of our students. Again, one of whom is my daughter who wanted to ask you this here question. Hi, Nate. It's me again. What do you like most about your job? It's exciting. There is never a dull moment. And the fact that I get to work with beautiful children every day five days a week is really rewarding. And I mean that wholeheartedly. This isn't just something that I would say working with children, especially young children is a very rewarding job. It's really heartening to hear you say that. In fact, if I'm to be fully honest, I get kind of emotional hearing you talk about it. On my best days, I feel similarly I have other days, (laughs) but on my best days, I feel very grateful to share with students what I have come to call a kind of sacred space. Part of the reason I was pursuing you as a guest on the podcast is that I wish more people had a more nuanced understanding of what it is that elementary school sports teachers do. And I know that listening to you today, they're going to have a better sense, but I want to give you a chance to speak to people very directly. Like, what do you wish more people knew about what happens in an elementary school sport hall? I think it goes back to the life lessons that we're able to teach in our space, that we're teaching you how to be accountable for your health how to be a good teammate. Teamwork makes the dream work, baby. Yes, yes. The list goes on. But knowing that what we do is not just about sports, it's going to help your child become a better person. It's going to teach your child how to cope with difficult times. I think there's so many life lessons that we can teach using sports. And I'm lucky to be a sport teacher. And your students are lucky to have you. You've been doing it for some time now. Almost 15 years. Yeah. So tell me, what do you know now that you didn't know five or 10 years ago? How resilient children are. And 
they've picked up on things that I never imagined a child could pick up on in my career here. There have been times where I'm going through a difficult situation, moving to Germany at 23 years old, becoming a man here was not always easy. And there were times where students just simply by looking at me knew without a shadow of a doubt that I was having a tough day. And I've had students, small students, young students, kindergarten age students or first graders who have approached me and said, Nate, you look like you're having a bad day. Do you need a hug? And there have been moments where these children have brought me to tears simply because they are who they are. I really feel grateful to do what I do. You know, kids are resilient and they are empathic. And I fear that it might be the case that after a year and a half of pandemic living, a lot of parents and teachers perhaps have lost sight of how magnificent young people almost universally are. You know, you hear endless stories of parents who have been cooped up in humble apartments with a couple of kids, locked down, cooped up, frustrated. And it's really inspiring to hear your story and your perspective. Like you don't seem to have lost any faith in the power of children at all. Like the rest of the world, Corona has been a struggle for me. I transitioned into a classroom teaching math, which was not easy for me, learning a new subject and being responsible for teaching that subject. It wasn't easy. And I'm sure we all have experiences we could share about how challenging it was. Wasn't the best experience, but I definitely learned from it. Uh, I'm really thankful to be able to go back into the sport hall and start doing what I do best. Yeah. I'm with you, man. And I hope that I could get back into the classroom consistently this year and find innovative ways to create a joyous experience of learning with my students. Look, I don't want to talk about it too much, but the pandemic has shaken us all, right? And, you know, postulated, right? Like we had it better than most. And I can say that I have a certain survivor's guilt. It's all very fraught. Again, I don't want to dive too far into it, but I do have a pointed question for you. Like what has teaching in the throes of a pandemic taught you about education? I think it's reinforced that students need sport as a catharsis. They need this stress relief. They need this movement to be able to perform academically. They also need it to decompress themselves when they don't know how to get rid of some of the anxiety or the fear. The experts say that a healthy child needs 30 minutes to 60 minutes of exercise a day. And frankly, that's probably not enough. Let's look at how much time our students had to spend in front of a computer last year during the pandemic. You, from your experience, how long did Madeline have to be in front of a screen? Yeah, I mean, six or eight hours. Wow. You know, if I'm to be candid with you, and then in addition to that, there were times that Megan and I were working, both of us are teachers, 
we were swamped with, sometimes overwhelmed by work. And there were times where, you know, I'll admit it, then she would be, you know, watching D-Mouse on the iPad. Like, and she didn't need that screen time, but we needed her as an only child to be occupied and, and, and shame and guilt and all of that. But, you know, I try to be graceful with myself. You know, it is indeed a pandemic. But yeah, to answer your question, too much time. Yeah, so I, I think it just goes back to us taking our children's health, our students' health seriously, knowing that they need to lead an active lifestyle in order to be a healthy child, to grow into a healthy adult. And that, as cliche as it sounds, a healthy mind and a healthy body go hand in hand. Absolutely. And that's more evident now than ever. And I think a lot of us, you and I, and I'm sure many of our listeners, they seized the new normal of pandemic life to really invest in their physical well-being and others didn't. And they feel it. In either case, they feel it. You know, for me, and I know this is the case for you too, I kind of vacillated, right? There were there were chapters of the pandemic where I was sitting around too much, maybe drinking too early. <laughs> and there were other chapters where I was really dialed in to good eating and high intensity fitness. I'm really grateful that my daughter and that other people's kids have the opportunity to spend time with you. I greatly appreciate that. And I would like your listeners to know if and when you feel like an educator in your child's life is making a positive impact, I personally would greatly appreciate it if you would reach out to that individual and let them know. It could be a small handwritten note. It could be an email. It goes a long way. And I appreciate you sharing that with me. Yeah. So listen, man, you're a splendid guy and you've been a splendid guest and that should be enough. But before I let you go, I want you to help me to drive this train into the station by doing what I always ask my guests to do, which is to share the story of a professional triumph and a professional failure. Let's begin with the failure so that we can end it together on a note of triumph. Well, I hope your listeners will get a laugh out of this. Definitely not what I envisioned when I became a teacher. In America, obviously, you have janitors who take care of situations in the sport hall or the classroom. In Germany, we don't have that luxury. So I think it was year three or four for me. And I had what I will refer to as the trifecta experience. Oh, no. Yeah. Oh. So the first lesson, I was doing yoga with first graders and... I like to tell the story this way, that I did such an amazing job at getting this child to relax <laughs> during yoga that unfortunately she had to use the bathroom in that moment and it went all over the yoga mat. And needless to say, I cleaned it up, took care of her, got her some new clothes. Okay, that was followed by the next lesson where a child came up to me and asked me to tie her shoe and if I recall correctly, I said something to the effect of, yes, but can you ask me again without using your baby voice? Because she said something to the effect of, can you please tie my shoes for me? I thought, yes, I would just like for you to formulate the question again and ask it like you normally would ask a question in the classroom. Before I could even finish my question, projectile vomit all over my shoes, brand new shoes, by the way. 
North Carolina people take their shoes pretty seriously. Oh, absolutely. Especially the athletes. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's called Trifecta for a reason. Number three. Two lessons later. This is still the mystery in the sport hall. I was helping a child find their way to the bathroom when I noticed there was a little ball on the ground. A ball of poo. How is it physically possible that a ball of poo gets out of the underwear onto the floor five steps away from the bathroom? Like, do you have to like pull your underwear to the side and jiggle your leg out? Like what, how, how does this happen? So the story of the mystery poo. Needless to say, I cleaned up everything myself that day. I went home and thought I did not become a teacher to do this. Yeah. <laughs> um, so was it a failure of mine? Not necessarily, but I thought it was a funny story to share with some of your <laughs> listeners and thought they might appreciate that. Oh, you had to grapple with the trifecta. Oh, yeah. I mean, hardly a failure, but you could hardly feel like you've succeeded in life. <laughs> <laughs> When that's your day. Yeah. All right. So let's hear the success. I know you have a great many stories of success. You are the stuff of legend among elementary school teachers at our school. So maybe you could just choose one among your many successes. I had a group of basketball players, a special group, and we won the Berlin Championships, which I feel was quite an accomplishment. You can imagine a city of what, 4 million people, and we win the state championship, uh, our middle school team, if you will, our fifth and sixth graders. It was just an incredible experience to win at that level, you know, considering how large of a city Berlin is. But the thing that really hit home was the card that they wrote for me and made for me after we won. And the stories that they shared within the car were about obviously not winning the championship, but our experience along the way. And that's something I w- I'll never forget. I greatly appreciate that. It was a triumphant moment indeed. And you have every reason to want to reflect on that fondly, as I know all of those kids will for many, many years to come. Nate Calhoun, it has been a true joy to have you here on this podcast. I know you were a bit reticent to be in conversation with me here. But if it was half as pleasurable for you as it has been for me, then we did all right. (laughs) Thanks for being on the podcast, buddy. Thank you for having me, Daniel. We did it. (laughs) Cool, man. All right, kids. That was me with Coach Cal. Good stuff, right? So follow this show wherever you get podcasts. Maybe leave a review. And if you dig what you hear, please tell a friend or two. And if studs mean something to you and you have the means to give a few, please hop over to patreon.com studs. See what you can get for your support. I'll be back with you in just two weeks. And I'll be in conversation with the high school choral director, Dr. Joseph Curtis. He's really a special dude. You're definitely not going to want to miss that one. And I'm pretty sure that will be my last conversation with a colleague of mine, because after that, I'm heading back across the Atlantic to talk to people who have devoted their lives to teaching and learning, but on the other side of the Atlantic. All right, I wish you health. I wish you wellness. Please take care. Give yourself the love you deserve, and I'll catch you in a couple weeks.